Welcome to the Reframe. Uh, my name is Josiah Van Vliet. Welcome to my initial podcast. Before I start, I want to do an introduction for the podcast generally, which starts with the guiding principle behind the podcast, which is a problem well stated is a problem half solved, which is almost a quote from Charles Kittering. The reason I chose the icon for the for the podcast is for a couple of reasons, but if you look at it, you'll see that it's a cube. It's a neck. It's called a Necker cube, which is a three dimensional shape represented in two dimensions. And what's interesting about that part of it is that it's multi-stable. So you can see one face of it as the front of the cube, or another face of it in the cube as the front of the cube. And you can sort of switch back and forth between the two. Um, now, the fact that you can see the Necker cube the way that it's presented isn't very interesting, but the fact that you can like choose to flip which way it re- is representing the cube is something that you wouldn't necessarily notice on your own, right? Because you just see it as a three-dimensional cube the way that you originally saw it. Um, but what I would like to do here at the reframe is sort of take things that look like they are the issue and point out that they are not the issue, that they are a sidebar problem. And so if you look again at the icon, you'll see that it's actually not just a Necker cube, it's actually something called reification, where the cube is rep- is suggested by the circles. And you can imagine getting into an argument with somebody about which way the cube that's represented is supposed to be represented because it's ambiguous. But you'd be really irritated if you found out that the argument that you actually were supposed to be having was about the circles and the fact that the cube didn't exist at all. Um, And that switch from a fight between two interesting things that seem like a fight moving into a point, me pointing out that uh, the fight was actually about this side issue that you hadn't noticed at all. And that's the kind of thing I really want to do with the podcast. So that's what I want to do with the podcast generally, but I also want to motivate why I'm doing this. Things are bad in our country right now. Um, The worst of us are running the country now. Donald Trump crawled over a bar to get to the presidency that I thought you had to fly to get over. He's a disgusting man who has said disgusting things, and I think he's going to be terrible for the country. But his election, the fact that he won, however it is that you count him winning, the presidential election has done something very odd because I have seen for a long time and not really recognized a lot of sec- a lot of self-negation amongst the left, amongst me and my friends, where those of goodwill have left themselves silent because they judge themselves inadequate. And we have now seen the most unpopular major party candidate in the history of the country win the Electoral College and elect a bunch of thieves and plutocrats to the cabinet. Some of my family members have found themselves radicalized, and I have found myself fundamentally emboldened 
anyone I know would be better at president. Literally anyone. If you were just mediocre to like pretty bad at your job and you're sort of a not great guy or woman, you'd be better president than the one we elected. And to me, that means that confidence should not be left only to the arrogant. We need the good-willed, the pure of heart. We need people who have humility to act without it now, which in no small part is where I have gotten the confidence in order to take to start this podcast. This podcast, in its attempts to untangle confusions and to present what I think to be the real issues in the face of false issues is my best. This is the thing that I think I am most likely to be useful at presenting or useful to be doing, really. And I feel like I'm good enough now because Trump's the president-elect. And I can only encourage you to go do whatever it is you're best at and to go do it boldly, loudly, publicly because the worst of us are now in charge and we cannot afford for those of us who care about quality, who care about outcomes, who care about people and things other than ourselves, we cannot afford to have those people waiting in the wings for their own perfection. Terrible people are winning and I think in small part it's because the best of us don't think we're good enough. It has been shown to us that anything is good enough. So I'm here doing my best and I can only encourage you to do the same. All right, so on to the episode. Should we have more manufacturing or not? Is the question I was going to think about for this episode. One of the things you hear about a lot is that, you know, things were better in the 1950s and the 1960s economically than they are now. And people think about what is different from now until then. And sometimes you get some racial arguments or some women's suffrage arguments or even some immigration arguments, which I think are pretty easy to knock down. But one of the things you hear a lot is we should just have more manufacturing jobs and build more cars the way that we used to. And, you know, what is the difference between now and then and would manufacturing really make that difference? First of all, let's talk about a little bit about what that better economy really was. Um, So if you were a white man in 1954, you could go directly from high school into a job with no intervening steps. You didn't have to go to college. You didn't have to apply to it. You didn't have to assume all that debt. You didn't have to wait four years while you didn't work in order to start um, gaining money. You could just go right from the free school that you didn't have to apply to right into a job. What you got for having done that is you got a job good enough to get you a single earner household which means only one person had to work. Childcare could be done by a family member. Um, you got a sense of stability that we don't see today. You were expected to be kept at that company for the for your whole life. And you weren't going to lose your job unless something very unusual happened, unless you did something really crazy. And so, you know, it, it was better for those people who could get access to it. You could go right from high school, right into a job, pay for a house and a family and put your kids to school and expect stability from your job situation. And 
18-year-olds have basically no access to that anymore. So things in that way were better. But the question is, would more manufacturing get us that back? And if you look at the charts that I've listed, um, especially the first link, um, you'll see that the amount of manufacturing that we do in this country has stayed the same over time as a percentage of the economy since, you know, post-World War II. Um, which means we're not making less stuff. We're actually making more stuff because the economy's grown over those 60 years and the percentage of the economy that is manufacturing has stayed the same. So it's basically the same. So we're making more stuff any way you measure it. So we can't need the same amount that we had before because that's we have even more now. And if that's not the thing that has changed then we need to look at what has. And the obvious thing that has changed is productivity. If you, let's say you made your company $100 every hour that you worked in 1952, the same hour that you spent makes your company $173 an hour today. And if you look at the relationship between wages and productivity um, in the second link, the first chart, you'll see that between 1952 and 1973, the percentage of the revenue that you generated that you got back as a wage stayed the same, or those two things went in lockstep, and then they started separating in 1972 and haven't met again. If you think about the same share of the revenue that you were making, in 1952, you were were at work for an hour, you made your company $100, and then you got paid 10 At that same job in 2014, you made your company $173, and you would get paid 11 You can see workers make more money for their parent company, and they get paid a tiny bit more. The way the productivity has increased is through this expenditure of capital. You know, you go to work, and you work on a computer or with a machine, you work at an office um, that's paid rent, Uh, you have an education, right? All that stuff has been, people have spent money on capital, right? Making you more productive so that for every hour that you work, you produce more for the company that you work for. And that has gone up 73% from 1952 to whenever they, these numbers are good. I think it's 2014. And you can see also that in the in chart D on that second link, that the relationship between wage and productivity is different for different income distributions. So if you are in anything but the top 5%, you've been getting over time a worse and worse percentage of your revenue as wage. And if you're in the top 5%, you've been getting basically the same deal since 1970, since 1952. But if you're in the 1%, you've actually gotten increasingly a bigger share of the revenue you generate. You've been getting not just more money, but a better part of the money that you make. And that's indicative of what has actually changed, right? People are calling back to the 1950s and 60s and saying it was better economically because we made cars. And you look and We make maybe more stuff, but definitely at least the same amount of stuff. And things are definitely worse 
if you're not at the 1% or above. And the way that's happened is that the people who have the money to buy you a computer, to buy you the equipment that you have, to rent the office that you, that you work in, the people who control that capital have used their power to change the distribution of revenue. And increasingly, less and less of what gets made by companies goes to the people who work there and goes to the people who own it. Because they use their money and their control of capital to get back a bigger piece of the pie, a bigger percentage of the pie. Even as, that, as, even as the economy grows, they're getting richer faster than the country is. And the way that they're doing that is they're taking more than they used to take from labor, right? Like the thing about the 1950s and 60s economically was they, people talk about the American dream. You can measure that, say whatever it is, a couple of different ways. You could say that just owning a home was the American dream or doing better than your parents was the American dream or just basically living in a meritocracy was the American dream. But the way that you get at all of that stuff has been reduced and restricted and closed off. Not because we don't make more stuff, not because we live in a fundamentally degraded culture, where, not because service jobs are worse somehow, like fundamentally, than manufacturing jobs, but because the people who own the own the equipment that you work on, who own the ability to hire, to employ you, have used that ownership stake to take more than they used to take back in the good old days. And that's not about manufacturing or service or farming or whatever. That's about redistribution of wealth upwards. The ownership class has taken such a big cut that we have historic levels of income and wealth inequality. As far as I understand it, you have to go back to ancient Rome to see the rich and the poor be as divided as they are in, in, in America today. The way to fix that is not to fight about whether or not we make enough Buicks or to say that, you know, there's something wrong with the culture of America. No, it's very simple. The rich have gotten richer, and they've gotten richer faster. And we need, through government action, or any old action really, we need to rebalance the sharing that goes on in the economy. But that's complicated, and that's contentious, and the powers that be have created narratives that are distracting and demoralizing to keep those sorts of things from being possible. And so we're left arguing about what's left over, like whether or not we should have manufacturing, which was never a causal issue in the first place. That's the reframe. Manufacturing isn't, isn't the issue. Wages versus productivity is, is the issue. How we share revenue, how we share wealth uh, among each other is the issue. And there are a lot of things I didn't touch here. There's a lot of globalism and technology problems that are really deeply intractable, but we're not talking about them well or much. 
and one little tidbit to talk to people about. If they say, you know, hey, we need to go back to the 50s and 60s, you could point out that in 1952, the top marginal tax rate, so the the amount of tax that you you paid on wages at the top of the income distribution was 92%. So if somebody wanted to pay you $10 million a year, some of the money that they paid you was going to get $92 out of every 100 was going to go to the federal government. And that had a number of effects, but one of them it had was to make wage distribution fairer. Whether or not that's a good idea to go back to, uh, the top marginal tax rate is 39% right now. And it used to be 92 you can have a functional U.S. economy at either of those rates, clearly, because they both happened. That's the takeaway, is that we need a more fair economy, not a more manufacturing economy. So a little bit of self-promotion here at the end. Um, Subscribe on iTunes. Rate me on iTunes. I've heard that's great for me. Um, You can email me at podcast at jvv.me with suggestions, complaints, whatever. I have no idea where this podcast is actually going to go, um, so I'm super open to suggestions and help and whatever. I have a Patreon page if you feel like encouraging me to do this. The email address is clearly what you would use to discourage me from doing this, and uh, I appreciate your time, and I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope it's useful.